According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 15. I'm sorry, Proverbs 16. We were in Proverbs 15 for so long, it still just kind of comes out like that. But Proverbs 16 now. Looking at verses 1 through 9, portraying the human divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. This is what happens when the Word of God comes alive and when God does the work. We are in tandem with the Lord. That God's working and we are His fellow workers because the Word of God comes alive. And this is a beautiful thing. It is not unique to the church age. It's just more intensified in the church age. And we want to be clear on that. Believers way back uh, ever since, I mean, in, in the age of Israel and the age of the Gentiles, uh, it's always been the case that when uh, human beings in the image of God are born again and living in the Word of God, that God is at work in and through them, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so we can, uh, we can appreciate that. All right, before we begin today, let's take a moment for silent prayer and humble ourselves under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You this morning for the truth of Your Word. And we were uh, reading some pretty sad things this morning. Father, there's churches out there that have atheists for their pastor. There's uh, churches out there that don't think you exist, that uh, don't think you wrote the Bible. Um, it's just uh, a sad place where uh, our, our country has gone, where Canada has gone. They're even worse than we are, Father. But I thank you that here in this lampstand that we have brothers and sisters that are born again, that fear you, that uh, know you, and, uh, and love you, Father, and love the word that you wrote. And we recognize that we can't add to it, we can't take away from it. We, uh, we, are, we have reverence before your word as we rightly divide the word of truth. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning that uh, once again you will be faithful to open the eyes of our understanding to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Yeah, I mean, if you think there is no God, why are you pastoring a church? What do you do with this book? I mean, goodness, how sad can that be? All right. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God is at work. He's at work in us, in all that we do and all that we say, even in our thinking. He knows our thinking. He knows our heart, and He is at work. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. So we want to be careful. We don't uh, just content ourselves with self reflection that uh, well we uh, tend to get lazy in that we don't spot, spot the things that we should be spotting but god spots them and he highlights them for us commit your works to the lord and your plans will be established we are uh, in tandem and so that's why um, I, I call this in point one the human slash divine tandem operations this is what god does this is what god does in and through us the human divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. It's God's wisdom that's gone forth from His Word. And we've received it. We've received it. We've learned from it. it, it we've uh, absorbed it. We've received it implanted. It's transforming. And uh, this is uh, it's a very powerful thing. The Bible is powerful. So the human divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. 
And so uh, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And so these are the kind of the beginning principles that we've gleaned here in main point one. Uh, we saw the bookends uh, from verse 1 to verse 9. The bookends include Adam, uh, the word for man, and Yahweh, the word for the Lord. And uh, we have them here in verse 1 and in verse 9, and it sets the, the boundaries of, this, uh, of the poetry here of this, of this section. God is at work in our thinking and our doing. He shapes our thinking through His Word and also freely shows Himself in our words. In our words and our deeds, verse 1 has the words, verse 9 has the deeds or the steps. So there's the tongue, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, and in verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so uh, just watch how he shows himself and watch what he does in your life and realize that is revelation, that is God revealing himself. Now it's not verbal revelation. It's not verbal plenary revelation. It's different from the Bible, all right? He's not inspiring more Bible verses, but he is revealing himself as he shows what he's doing as he demonstrates his will in these things. So he freely shows himself in our words and our deeds. And uh, this is, uh, is powerful, all right? God is at work both in the thinking and the doing. We learned that from Philippians 2.13, and we see it played out here. Self-reflection is often insufficient. It is much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. In Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, try me. Uh, he, he can expose these things, and he's very good at it. Committing our actions to the Lord, this was subpoint D. Committing our actions to the Lord is the blessing of embracing the human divine tandem. So this is what God wants to do. This is what God often does. We, however, often, very frequently in our carnality, we fail to cooperate. <laughs> we reject the divine human tandem. We decide to do our own thing. We decide to, uh, to venture off into, into carnality. And so when we do that, when we do that, we're thinking our own thoughts, which are not God's thoughts. We're saying our own words, which are not God, God's words. We're doing our own deeds, which are not God's deeds. We have separated, we have forced ourselves away from this human divine tandem. And that's called carnality. That's called walking in darkness. And uh, we've got to quit it. We've got to confess our sins, be restored to fellowship. We should embrace this tandem. We should be thrilled to have God at work in and through us. We should be thrilled to uh, think His thoughts, to say His words, to do His deeds. It's a privilege and a blessing to uh, to be intimate with the Lord in that way. And so this has been true in every human dispensation. It's not unique to the church age. You, uh, I mean, just read Psalm 119 and you, you know that's a believer that's just in love with the Word of God. Very intimate with doctrine. And how much doctrine did he have back in those days? You know, the psalmist in Psalm 119, he had very little in terms of the Bible. You know, he didn't have the great prophets. He had, he had the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Um, he had maybe half of the Psalms, whatever Psalms David had written. Uh, he had Solomon's Proverbs, all right. But he didn't have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, any of the later prophets. Didn't have, uh, of course, any of the New Testament that we have. He was a believer that was just absolutely in love with the Word of God as it was written in his generation. And uh, thinking God's thoughts, saying God's words, uh, doing God's deeds, Um, embracing the human divine tandem 
that, uh, that we're looking at here in Proverbs 16. So it's been true in every dispensation, but it is most particularly true for us in the body of Christ. It's extra true, <laughs> all right? It's, it's true in all ages, but it is far more so for us uh, in an in order of magnitude to a degree beyond anything because we are literally baptized into union with Jesus Christ. We are one with Jesus Christ as, as you know, the, the two shall become one, Christ and His bride are one. And we are baptized into, into identification with Jesus Christ. No Old Testament believer had that. It's, it's powerful. All right. Sub so point E. Um, when functioning in the human divine tandem, it is important to keep focused on the purpose and plan of God for everything He calls us to do. And so we see this in verse 4. Uh, we have the commitment of your works to the Lord in verse 3, and then the plan of God in verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And so don't lose sight of that. Keep focused on the purpose and plan of God for everything. And uh, if you're grumbling about something that God's permitting, why are you grumbling over something that God's permitting? God's got a purpose for why He's permitting it. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to like it because I'm sure he doesn't like it, but he, he's permitting it because he's part of what he does for all things to work together for good. And so even evil glorifies him in the day of, of, uh, of glory. And so uh, these things are important as well. And so last week we were talking about this and we looked at it from the standpoint of Ephesians 1.11 and Ephesians 3.11, the eternal purpose of God. It's an eternal purpose. He's not winging it. He knows what he's doing. He set this plan in motion and at the foundation of the world, the Son and the Holy Spirit both agreed to it. They have like-mindedness on, this, on the divine decrees and the eternal life uh, a conference. And so this is now being laid out there. And this is his wisdom to bring this about. He knows what he's doing. And uh, it's important for us to maybe reflect and relax and, and say, okay, Lord, I don't understand why. I don't understand why you allow this to happen or that person to get into office or this other election to happen this way or I don't understand why you know this you know vehicle accident happened or why this cancer diagnosis came. There's a ton of stuff we don't understand. But he does. He understands it because he planned it and it's part of his his wisdom to glorify Jesus Christ. So we uh, it's it's useful uh, to review the plan of God study every so often so we don't lose focus. Now, which brings us now to verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. One of the the central issues in the plan of God, of course, is the angelic conflict, which is centered on pride, which is centered on Satan and his rebellion, and then Adam and his rebellion, and you and I and our rebellion. And every human sin uh, can be traced back to the issue of pride that attitudinally uh, feeds everything we do out of the will of God. So everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. This is a practical application now for this human divine tandem. If you want to be a fellow worker with God, if you want to have his thoughts, say his words, do his deeds, uh, then you got to get rid of the pride. Pride cannot be a part of any of that. Whatever pride we hold on to, whatever pride we operate under is going to impact our thinking, our words, and our deeds. And in fact, it may totally destroy our thinking, our words, and our deeds and turn otherwise good things into terrible things. And that's, uh, that's the issue here. Pride is the essence of Satan's rebellion against God. 
It goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the beginning of angelic sin. Pride is the essence of Satan's rebellion against God and the prime attitudinal precursor to all human sin. It is the prime, not the only, but it's the prime attitudinal precursor to all human sin. Every time you commit a sin, it's a reflection of pride in your heart that says you want to do what you do even though God says it's wrong. You've got a human pride that says, well, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do this because I want to, because I like to, because of me, whatever it is. I come first and whatever God says, to heck with that, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so there is a pride attitudinal precursor. It's like, uh, I don't know, what's a good metaphor for this? It's like a, a little batch of starter dough or something, right? It's just, uh, it, it's there in the back of our heart, in the core of our being. And uh, when that attitude of pride generates those prideful thoughts, then now we've already stepped down that road of mental attitude sin. Mental attitude sin, verbal sin, overt sin, and pride underlies every single one I can think of. Um, Pastor Theme said it was the granddaddy of them all, and, and I agree. Pride is the granddaddy of, of every sin we ever do. So pride is the essence of Satan's rebellion against God. And we're going to look at all these verses. We'll take some time with this to make sure we're solid on it. You've, heard, you've had it before. Uh, I don't think there's anything new maybe, but maybe it'll be stressed in a way you're not familiar with. Likewise, the prime attitudinal precursor, we'll look at those. Those come from Proverbs. And then when we get through all those passages, I'll finish reading the rest of the slide. I didn't know it was going to come up all at once. Uh, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. In fact, much of what He does, when it says God is at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure, most of that is a humbling activity. (laughs) Most of that is God's work humbling us, keeping us humble, squashing that pride when it rears its head. He will ultimately do so when every knee bends and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that great white throne judgment is going to be the, the maximum humiliation for all angelic and human arrogance. All of that pride and selfishness and arrogance is going to be crushed at the great white throne. And the awe and the majesty of God is going to be so powerful, manifest through Jesus Christ, that even the most hardened satanic heart will, will be... Uh, put in a place whereby they drop to their knees and they confess. Uh, it's going to be a total repudiation of human pride and angelic pride. All right. So we see it here. It is mentioned in Proverbs 16. It's mentioned in other Proverbs we'll see here shortly. Uh, but when you go back to, we were talking about dragons and dinosaurs earlier, Job 41 is a good place to see some of this. Job 41, and it's the rebuke of Leviathan. It's the rebuke of Job in context with Behemoth and Leviathan. And so in the structure of this book, it's kind of interesting when, when Yahweh finally speaks and he tells Job, he says, okay, Job, he says, pull up your pants now, let's, uh, let's deal with this. Gird up your loins like a man, he says. And um, the fact is, he taunts him a little bit and says, since you think you know better than me, then, then uh, teach me what I don't know. And uh, you get a couple chapters like that. And then you get the examples of Leviathan and, or Behemoth and Leviathan. And that's what we look at here in Job 40 and 41. 
And you'll notice in Job 40 it starts, The Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And so uh, he's called a fault finder and he's reproving God. This, these are the, the essences of his sin. And uh, Job has to repent of his sin. And this is what happens here. And then in verse 6, uh, the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Since you know better than me, Job, then all right. You put on the big boy pants and I'll sit down for Bible class and you teach me. And all of this is uh, sanctified sarcasm in the Lord's rebuke here. And so then he says, here we go. And because if you can do this, if you can do this in verse 14, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. If you are mightier than God, then you can save yourself. You don't need a savior. If you can, if you're more mighty than the creator, savior, redeemer, then, uh, then go ahead. You know, good luck with that is what Yahweh is telling him here. And to prove that it's laughable, he talks about the dinosaurs here called behemoth in uh, verse 15 and following down to the end of the chapter. And then the dragon, the Leviathan in chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? And when you read through all this, uh, you have all the the descriptions here um, about about him and trying to fill him with harpoons and trying to... um, No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him in verse 10. No one goes one-on-one with a dragon. Okay, or if they do, they don't live to tell the story. No one does. And uh, so no one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. This is 41.10. Who then is he that can stand before me? If, if a human can't stand before a dragon, where does Job think he gets off telling Yahweh that he's wrong and complaining about these things? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God says he's the creator source of everything that exists. And uh, to try to challenge that is insane. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs. Starting in 41.12, we get a description of this dragon. Or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there are terror. There is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. Uh, one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. So if you're trying to stick your sword in somewhere in between uh, little, you know, little chinks in the armor there, there are none. There is no space between any scale on this dragon's skin. There's no, uh, unlike the hobbit, there's no missing spot there in his chest where the guy can shoot the black arrow through and uh, and pierce the heart. Uh, Leviathan is better than smog when it comes to when it comes to that. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. And uh, you talk about fire breathing dragon. How about that? Verse nineteen: Out of his mouth go burning torches; sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and a burning rush. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Now, there are liberals that don't think the Bible means what it means, and they don't like this text, and they try to demythologize. They, they call this a crocodile, as if they've ever seen a fire-breathing crocodile at some point. 
And, you know, humans have defeated crocodiles. Uh, we realize that the Nile River in Egypt was a place, was a setting in the Middle East where there were a lot of hippopotamuses. That's what they think behemoth was a hippopotamus. Or uh, that uh, Leviathan was a crocodile. They try to demythologize, uh, if that's a word. They, they don't like the miracles and the supernatural and the description of, of dragons and angels and so forth. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not prejudiced against that and have an open mind and read the Bible for what it says and believe that God wrote these things, well then we have no issues. I don't have a problem with dinosaurs and dragons because I don't have a problem with angels or miracles or the flood or Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. Uh, to me, that's me getting saved is more unbelievable than dragons walking this earth or things like that back in the day. All right. And so uh, more of this. His neck lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear because of the crashing they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds, and he spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Okay? <laughs> so that's impressive. But now notice, see, this is, this is the key, because Satan is one of these creatures that these biological, zoological dragon creatures are a reflection of the angelic realm, which is Satan's natural form. See, all of the angels had a form that are reflected in animals. Bulls are a reflection of cherubim, for example. We know that cherubim have bull faces, that they have bull heads, okay? And so the, the oxen or the bull in the animal realm, zoolog- let me say this again, zoological bulls are a reflection of angelic cherubim. Right, And then there are other cherubim, there are seraphim that are serpents. And so we have zoological serpents. So we have animals in Adam's creation, there are animals that resemble angelic beings, angelic types, angelic kinds, if you will. And so this dragon is a zoological uh, reflection of Satan himself, of the satanic angelic type. Right? And so then when he materializes, when Satan's a spirit being, when Satan materializes, he has in the past materialized as a serpent, as a dragon, right? As the talking serpent in the in the garden who was telling Eve all those lies about the tree. All right. Anyway, the last two verses here are key. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. You know, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he has corrupted his wisdom, and we're going to see that in Ezekiel 28. He used to be the wisest creature ever, now it's completely corrupted because he's lost all fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. So really, the uh, 
the angelic conflict, what it boils down to is this issue of pride. It issues down to Satan's pride, Adam's pride, our pride, and how God is resolving that in grace. How God is resolving that in the humility of Jesus Christ who humbled himself and went to the cross to provide us eternal life. And it centers on this. So he looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Pride is the essence of Satan's rebellion against God. All right, Isaiah 14 is the five I wills of his verbal rebellion. And it comes before Ezekiel in our text. It was written before Ezekiel. Um, In some ways, though, I almost want to read it later, but let's go ahead and read it now. Isaiah 14. And this is a taunt. This is a taunt. And uh, it's, it's curious because the vocabulary for proverb and the vocabulary for taunt, same thing, <laughs> okay? But we're going to take up a taunt against the king of Babylon in that day. And so we're talking, this is a millennial taunt. They can't sing this yet. The Jewish people are still dealing with Satan today. The Jewish people are still have rockets attacked at them and all kinds of things. The, the Arabs are trying to exterminate them. But it will come about Verse 3, in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And I believe this is not when they come back uh, under uh, the Persian rule. This is millennial in its application. And so there's a taunt they're going to sing for the millennial kingdom. And it starts in verse 4, how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger and unrestrained persecution. This will have its fulfillment in the tribulation when Antichrist is ruling this world. And all of that's going to come to an end when Jesus comes to, to conquer at Armageddon. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon. And so the whole earth is rejoicing. Sheol is beneath, beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. <laughs> they're rolling out the red carpet, they're rubbing their hands, all Sheol is all excited when Antichrist and false prophet get thrown alive into the lake of fire. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, the departed spirits, the Rephaim. These are the disembodied giants, the demons. All the leaders of the earth It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. And they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. The greatest tyrant this planet will ever see is going to be Antichrist, the son of Satan, the half-angel, half-human Nephilim, uh, world emperor that, that will conquer in the tribulation, but then be conquered by Jesus Christ and Armageddon. And even you have been made weak as we. Even you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have brought you down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. And so he's going to be, you know, he goes to the grave, and this is his bed. He made his bed, he's going to lie in it, as we say. And so then we have a description of a human king that gives way now to a description of the power behind the throne that goes from the 
the human or the hybrid Antichrist to Satan himself. Satan is the one that empowers Antichrist. And when the whole world worships the beast, they worship the dragon and the beast. They say, who is like the beast and who is like the dragon? And they become dragon worshipers in the, in the uh, tribulation. So now it turns to Satan in verse 12, or Lucifer in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven. This is why we know it's not the earthly king in view anymore. He was never in heaven. This is now uh, Satan himself, or Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. In the Latin Vulgate, that's the term. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In, uh, in Hebrew, this is Hillel ben Shachar which I take as a personal name, Hillel. Some of the great rabbis were called Hillel. And that's, to me, curious because uh, Satan's personal name was Hillel, the bright shining one, bright in fame. Extra credit? The name bright in fame for bright shining one? That's Hebrew. The Teutonic bright in fame is Robert. The Teutonic right is, is Rodebert in the way we get the English Robert. So I finally found my first Bob in the whole Bible, and it's Satan. (laughs) I'm heartbroken. So how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, Halil ben Shachar, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Now here's the maximum pride ever spoken. You said in your heart, before he verbalized it, it was internal. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. These are his five high wells. And they're total rebellion against the plan of God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Nevertheless, you have this this arrogance, this pride that five times wants promotion, 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 promotion. And what did the colonel say thousands of times over 50 years? If God doesn't promote you, you're not promoted. That's right. If he puts you where he puts you, serve him where he puts you. Stay humble, and then he'll promote you. So nevertheless... Uh, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit, to the deepest part of the pit, the deepest of the depths. Those who see you will gaze at you, they will ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness? That's the Tohu Wabohu judgment of Genesis 1-2. And overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. You know, when you look at a fallen, you know, you look at a, a fallen, you look at, uh, you know, a tyrant that's been captured, you look at Saddam Hussein being pulled out of his rat hole, you look at, uh, you know, other Hitler committed suicide in his bunker because he didn't want to be pulled out. I mean, all kinds of other, you know, Napoleon was exiled to Elba and then he escaped. But when you look at someone that was high and mighty, that was brought so low, and then you think, wow, we were afraid of that? What was that? You know, imagine uh, every fallen angel and every un- human unbeliever looking at Satan and seeing their God, seeing the uh, the one they followed in rebellion against 
the Lord. Is this the one who made uh, the world tohu and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? This is the one little inference I have that makes me think that on the angelic earth in their original creation that they were killable. You could kill an angel back then. That, uh, you know, if you don't allow a prisoner to go home, that means you're, you're executing, you know, like they did with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They made sure he died in the, in the Nazi concentration camp before the Allies could, could rescue the, the camp. And there's something here about Satan not allowing his prisoners to go home. And that's, uh, that's curious to me if, in fact, angels were killable in, uh, in, originally in this earth. Now, of course, they're not. With uh, the end of the angelic stewardship, all of the angels are now locked into their spirit status, and, and you can't kill an angel today. But, um, but back then, something to think about. All right. Anyway, there's more. It, takes, it goes all the way down to verse uh, 21 on this. Now, um, Ezekiel, our next passage, Ezekiel 28. Another passage where a human king is in view, and then, or a human ruler, and then uh, Satan is addressed secondarily. Same structure. We see it again and again. So uh, we have the leader of Tyre in verse 2, and the message there in 2 through 10 is for the, uh, the human leader on the throne. He himself is also very satanic that you might expect. Uh, remember this king of Tyre, this is the royal family that produced Jezebel, the royal family that gave their daughter to, uh, to King Ahab to marry, and we know how terrible that was. So this was a, an awful, awful throne. But then it switches from the leader of Tyre to the king of Tyre with a different term in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. So we switch from the human to Satan now in 12 and following. You had the seal of perfection or you were the sealer of perfection. Uh, This was another name. I think this was a title that Satan enjoyed. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Notice, full of wisdom. He corrupts that wisdom, however. And uh, losing his fear means he no longer has the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And it just boggles the mind when people try to say, well, this was a human being, this this was a king of Tyre. There was no king of Tyre that was ever in Eden. The only human beings ever in Eden were Adam and Eve, and they got kicked out. All right, so... Uh, this, uh, the prophet Ezekiel is not rebuking Adam and Eve that were living thousands of years before Ezekiel was ever born. Uh, but somebody else was in the Garden of Eden besides Adam and Eve. That would be the serpent. That would be uh, the tempter. Every precious stone was her covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel. And it's fun reading this after reading the Leviathan chapter. Because the dragon and all his ferociousness and all of his scales and all of his, that's the fallen Leviathan. That's the fallen dragon. Before he fell, he was a beautiful, beautiful jewel-encrusted, gem-encrusted piece of art. Look at these gems and jewels and precious metals. Leviathan lost all these. 
Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. So this is not a human being that was born, this is an angelic being that was created. On the day you were created, they were prepared and he had workmanship and settings and sockets and precious metals and jewels. What a beautiful dragon he was before he fell. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. So the cherub rank stated here, the Messiah terminology, it's the only time an angel ever has Messiah terminology describing him. You are the Mashiach Kerub, the Messiah cherub, who covers or who guards. Remember, what was, that, what was Adam told to do? He was told to guard. He was told to cultivate the garden and to keep it. Here's the Christ cherub, and he's given a guardianship function, and he fails You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. We don't know what the animals were like on the angelic earth. We don't know what the plants were like on the angelic earth. We don't know what the rocks were like on the planet earth, on the angelic earth. Stones of fire. What was that about in the earthly angelic temple? Whatever the case. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. The first sin was not an overt sin. The first sin was internalized, mental attitude sin. And it's the heart of pride that launched it all. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Notice that? It started internally. Now, he's not a sinner. He doesn't have an old sin nature. He's not in Adam. He is a sinless, perfect, angelic being. But he starts to develop an attitude of thinking in the process of this wealth that he accumulated by the abundance of your trade. And so being internally filled with violence, developing a a thought process, an attitude of violence, an attitude of pride that uh, if he can't get what he wants through trade, he'll get what he wants through violence. You know, why not be satisfied with the abundance? Because the, the hard attitude of pride can't be satisfied with the abundance because there's always more. Or there's somebody who has something that you don't have and you want it. And so now you start to covet. And if trade doesn't get it to you, then violence can take it. And so you sinned. Adam was not the first sin. Eve was not the first sin. Uh, Satan was the first sin. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He loses his priesthood. He loses his beauty. He, he's a, he now becomes a fallen creature. This is the consequence of his sin. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. So how does God judge, uh, judge that? Takes away the beauty and gives him the ugliness. Now he's got to disguise himself as an angel of light because he's not a beautiful creature anymore. Now he's a terrifying creature. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. And this is the display. The angelic conflict is a display. 
to uh, the, the, the fall of, the, of Satan and the one-third of the angels that went after him are on display. And the elect angels have to observe this. The elect angels have to testify to God's justice in this effect. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade. Notice, one sin leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. When you can't confess and, and plead to God for mercy, then you just end up with sin after sin after sin after sin. You end up with an interlocking system of evil. And that's what the cosmos is. It is Satan's interlocking system of evil. So it's multiplied. The unrighteousness of your trade. Trade is not intrinsically unrighteous, but he made it unrighteous because of his attitude. Notice it says, you profaned your sanctuaries. Satan was the very first money lender, the very first money changer in the temple. This was all in the angelic earth. I think this gives us the explanation for why Jesus acted so uncharacteristic when he saw the money changers in the temple in his day, flipping over tables and making the scourge of whips and things that were not typical for his behavior. But on these occasions he was, he was ferocious. Zeal for his father's house consumed him because he'd seen it before. God the Son saw this when Satan did this in the angelic earth. So you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. So what happens if you're a fire-breathing dragon and then it explodes out from your... (laughs) Yeah, goodbye to the gold, the gems, the precious stones. Hello to the hardened scales of the Leviathan. I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. How about that? All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified. You will cease to be forever. So this is the judgment of the dragon when he falls and becomes the Leviathan. But it all centers on pride. Look at all those pride references. It is the attitudinal precursor to Satan's sin, to all human sin. I think we have this again and again throughout the Proverbs. Of course, Proverbs 16.5, that's our passage today. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. But when we talk about abominations, it starts with pride. I realize that there's a lot of folks that want to start preaching on some sins and start preaching on the homosexuals and start preaching on whatever, it starts with pride. It absolutely starts with pride every time. Proverbs 6.16, there were six things which the Lord hates, seven which were an abomination to Him. And what does it start with? Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Notice that's the order. From, from the heart to the mouth to the deeds. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among his brothers. These are the seven toknavah, uh, I guess that's singular, toknavoth, plural, abominations before the Lord. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 13. I, verse 12 says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. So I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Understand, God is the living God. 
That means where He chooses to dwell is where we need to choose to dwell. And He chooses to dwell in His Word. I find knowledge and discretion. If we want to abide in God, we've got to abide in His Word. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Okay? This doesn't, by the way, this doesn't support love the sin and hate the sinner. Or I'm sorry, hate the <laughs> love the sinner, hate the sin, whatever. I think I said that wrong. Actually, hate it all. Hate the sin, hate the sinner, love the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. But see, it comes to pride and arrogance. That's what feeds the evil way. It's the attitudinal precursor to all human sin. All right, now, the second portion of this. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Daniel chapter 4. I love Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar in this example here in Daniel chapter 4 And I think it's interesting how in the fiery furnace of chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar has a fear of Yahweh. He believes that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is a powerful God. And he makes a law that blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not going to be acceptable. Makes it a crime in his country. But he doesn't get saved. He doesn't get saved until chapter 4. Even though he has a fear of their God in chapter 3. Am I saying this right? I am not saying this right. He does get saved after the fiery furnace in chapter 3. That's what I'm trying to say. Let me make sure I'm not confused on this. All right. So um, because in the first part of chapter 4, which is really the end of chapter 3 in the Hebrew, he, uh, he talks about God Most High, and he celebrates God Most High, and uh, talks about how he's personalized it. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which El Elyon, the Most High God, has done for me. So he's not just an, an impersonal God out there somewhere. Now Nebuchadnezzar confesses he's my God. He becomes a believer in El Elyon, the Most High God. All right. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He composes a psalm here to celebrate getting saved. All right. Now, what happens next is God starts treating him like a son. God starts disciplining him as a beloved son, as a child. He starts to remove the pride. When he was an unbeliever, hey, unbelievers do what unbelievers do. You know, dogs bark, cats meow. Unbelievers do what unbelievers do. God doesn't discipline a child that's not his. He's of his father, the devil. But his son, somebody that now names the name of of Jesus Christ, someone that's now born again, now the father says, all right, you're mine. I love you. And here's your discipline. And this is what happens here in chapter four. He gets humbled. And so he's walking around, he's uh, on his roof, he thinks this is a great kingdom he's made, and uh, he's going to get humbled, okay? So down to verse 29, he's walking on the roof, and 
reflecting, aren't I a great guy? You know, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? No, look out. <laughs> you were warned a year ago. That's pride and God won't tolerate it. If, if, if God has promoted you, then that's to God's glory, not yours. He probably chose the worst chump he could. The weak things of the world to, cha- to shame the, the strong. The foolish things to shame the wise. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. He puts on the throne who he wants to have on the throne. And sometimes it's the basest of men. Sometimes he gives us the worst president imaginable for his purposes. All right. And so here he is talking about how great he is, and uh, he's given the mind of an animal. He has to go live in the backyard for seven years and eat grass and all this stuff. But then when he wakes up, when he learns his humility lessons, and I hope we learn them sooner than seven years, (laughs) right? I hope we learn them, but we do. I mean, human rebellion, and we just start acting like animals and thinking like animals, and it's, uh, it's a dark place. But in verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. That right there is the biggest miracle of all. That someone didn't just execute the crazy guy and and take the throne for himself. I believe it was Daniel holding this kingdom together. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. In fact, he became greater than ever before because God taught him this humility. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. When you give all glory to God and claim none for yourself, you've learned the lesson. Praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Don't you love that? That's a great verse. And I say, thank you, Lord. Because I need it. We all need it. Thank you, Lord. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He will ultimately do so when every knee bends and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And uh, this is Isaiah 45, 23. has a couple of quotes in the New Testament. Isaiah 45, 23. Didn't know I was going to spend the whole hour on this one slide, but that's okay. It's important. Make sure we're oriented. And it's curious. Here's Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Here's Isaiah... uh, 200 years before Cyrus? 300 years before Cyrus? Yeah, about 250 maybe years before. I gotta look this up. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Now there's skeptics and liberals and God haters and Bible doubters that don't think this is real. That don't think God could have named Cyrus 250 years before Cyrus was born. And so they invent all these theories about, well, you know, there was. Proto-Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah, there were really two or three Isaiahs. And then, you know, later on they kind of shoved all these things together into a book, into a scroll. Because they reject the fact that God can predict somebody by name 250 years ahead of time. Never mind the fact this is the very same author who said 700 years ahead of time that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. (laughs) Alright? So 
A 700-year virgin birth prophecy to me is, is a big deal. And a 250-year Cyrus prophecy is less impressive. Still miraculous, but not as a big a deal. Anyway, he can do the lesser, he can do the greater, he can do the lesser. There's off fortiori principles at work. But here we have it. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, a general, a, a Gentile king, he calls a Messiah. He calls an anointed one because he's the one that's going to bring Israel back to the land. His anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not shut. Does that sound familiar? He really is a type of Christ. He's a Persian, Gentile king, type of Christ. All right. And so all of these things, um, he's doing this not because they deserve it. Yahweh is going to bring Israel back to the land because Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is faithful. Verse 5 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. See, I believe Cyrus gets saved in the process of being the type of Christ that Yahweh uses him for. All right. You get down lower, and he keeps reminding them that he's the creator, he's the creator. In uh, verse 8, he's the creator. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. That's verse 9. If you're a pot, you don't tell the potter what to do. He's the potter, you're the pot. And uh, who are you, right? Uh, Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? You know, it's like the fetus arguing with the, 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 the father at the moment of conception or arguing with the mother at the moment of birth. Uh, it's just not going to happen, right? And so the, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. And this is his tremendous testimony here to what God is doing. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their hosts. So he's the one that's doing this in the angelic realm and the human realm. Get down to uh, verse 16. They will all be put to shame, even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. (laughs) I tell you, when Judgment Day comes, every idolater is going to be so ashamed. I mean, what are these idols we're making for ourselves? Verse 18 says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it, tohu wabohu, but formed it to be inhabited. That that Genesis uh, tohu issue was not as it was originally created. Um, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word which has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. Now this is the God who cannot lie. How many times does he take a vow? Very limited. I think it's three times that he's taken a vow. He swore in his wrath that Israel will not enter into his wrath. He swore that Jesus would be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek priesthood was begun with an oath. We're learning that in the Hebrew study right now. And here's the third. He swears, I have sworn by myself, by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and I will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. 
This is the prophecy. And uh, this is what's going to have its fulfillment. All right. And so they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. What a, uh, what a prophecy. All right, real quickly then, I've got two minutes. Romans 14.11 and Philippians 2.10 both have as their foundation the Isaiah passage that we just got through looking at. This is why we're not going to be judgmental one over another, why we have to have grace as, uh, you know, people have weak faith and they struggle with some things, so love them, show them grace and, and don't condemn them. And hopefully they'll love you and show you some grace and not condemn you because we all have uh, areas of weakness and areas of strength in our faith. So verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Why again do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We're not the judge, God is. God is. And then Philippians 2.10. Of course, we're to have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. We need to humble ourselves. He did what Satan wouldn't dream of doing. He emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges. He identified with the creature. Satan would have done that in a billion years. And so for that he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Satan had all those I wills, but he wasn't humble to receive any of them. Jesus humbled himself and is named far above. So that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there it is. All right. So if you want this tandem, this divine human tandem to be at work, you got to get rid of the pride. The pride puts you uh, on target for discipline. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to these uh, principles related to pride and arrogance, that those things that make us imitators of Satan instead of imitators of Christ. Father, uh, we want to walk with you I'm going to be more like Him in all that we say and all that we do. So uh, use this message to bring that about. Take use of, of this truth, Father, and plant it within our souls so that it can dwell richly, so that it can spring forth and bear fruit. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.